And so I, I hope that, that more have those kind of experiences where you are changed by a deep, immersive experience with a timeless work that has impacted so many people in so many different places for many, many generations. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Jeremy Wayne Tate, the co-founder and president of the Classic Learning Test. The Classic Learning Test is an alternative to the SAT and ACT. It's been in the news lately as it started to be adopted by more and more schools, such as the State University System of Florida. The key idea is to bring back a focus on educating the whole human person, intellectually, emotionally, and ethically, uh, to help them live a happy and fulfilling life, and doing that by focusing on the classic texts and fundamental philosophical questions about how to live. If you Google CLT Author Bank, you'll see that students may be tested on familiar names like Epictetus and Seneca, which uh, we, of course, at Stoa love to see. There are a few key topics we touch on in this conversation, uh, how testing shapes the purpose of an organization and reveals what we value as a society, the importance of questioning default assumptions around education today, how to approach classic works today, even if one doesn't have much of a background in them, perhaps especially if one doesn't have much of a background in them. We also touch on one of my favorite thinkers, C.S. Lewis, at the end. The conversation is short, snappy, direct, and on a crucial topic with someone who is in the arena changing how education is done today. Enjoy. Thanks so much for joining. Kiel, thanks for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Let's start with this uh, broad question. What's your story? What's my story? I grew up in Oregon, Caleb, and my dad was ATF. My dad was at Waco, if you remember that, back in the 1990s when David Koresh convinced many people that he was Christ's uh, return. Uh, had a big impact on me as a, as a child. Thought that I was going to be going into law enforcement for most of my time growing up, but going into my senior year in high school, somebody gave me a copy of Mere Christianity, and I started mm. reading Lewis, Chesterton. I uh, had a conversion to Christianity at that time in my life and really fell in love with books and ideas at the same time. It was my first, I was a public school kid growing up. I had never been exposed to philosophy or kind of the history of ideas. And so graduated from Louisiana State in 2004, graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary in 2010, converted to the Catholic Church in 2010 as well, and launched a classic learning test in 2015 really out of concerns uh, about the influence that the college board has on American education. So how do exams shape the telos of an organization? Best question ever, Caleb. Love it. Yeah, I mean, let's just take just the college board, for instance. Okay, so the college board has been around since 1900. They're a very old organization. In 1926, they formulated the SAT, which really until the end of World War II was pretty obscure. Not that many people knew of it, but after World War II, and the GI Bill, suddenly you have more people wanting to go to college than basically seats available. And so you mm -hmm. have this sorting that's required. 
who are the top applicants, who are the brightest minds. And so the SAT becomes a very important metric. 10 years after that, the ACT is going to launch as a competitor, but it really launches out of a disagreement with the SAT. So the SAT was a cognitive aptitude test from its origins, right? Essentially, they took the same concept that was used in World War I in the Army Alpha test. And, and you think about high stakes testing. In World War I, they were administering a multiple choice test simply to get an idea for who had the highest cognitive ability. And if that was you, congrats, you're going to stay back in intelligence. And if that is not you, you're going to go to the front lines, right? Talk about high stakes mm -hmm. testing. They used that same concept to introduce the SAT in 1926, right? But if you just imagine, Caleb, as a hypothetical, let's just say that the SAT from its beginning was a test that mainly was evaluating a student's, let's say, knowledge of the Constitution. Or maybe let's just say it's mainly, mainly uh, testing their knowledge of the Old Testament of the Bible, right? That would completely change the academic interest in the Constitution or the academic interest in the Old Testament of the Bible. It would shape profoundly what schools are actually doing. And so my realization in 2015 was that the SAT and the ACT, they're actually driving curriculum at the secondary level. And that's where I found them so problematic. Yeah, right. I suppose there's always a concern that teachers are teaching to the tests. And if that's true, well, why not just make the test as good as it can possibly be? It's sort of one of the... One yeah, of the exactly. Well said. And I think it's one of the few concepts that almost every teacher agrees on. And I'm not even saying it's a good thing, Caleb. I think for better or worse, the tests do end up driving the curriculum. And look, if teachers know, all right, on the most important tests, it's likely my, my students are going to encounter Dante or Shakespeare or John Locke, uh, some of these luminaries, then they're going to be far more inclined to get their students ready by immersing them in those kinds of texts as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the motivation then for going back to the classics? Of course, we're always happy with that. It's a stoicism podcast. So always happy when we yeah. go back to classics, but always got to ask that, that root question. I love it. You know, you know I'm Caleb, coming, coming into this, this recording, I was talking to my CFO and, and uh, my, and, and Soren Schwab, our marketing lead and sales lead. And we have this weird practice at CLT, no matter how busy things are getting, we spend the first 30 minutes of the day on Monday reading out loud together as a company. And all, for so many people, their favorite was Marcus Aurelius' meditations. We did that. We'd read a handful every day. We'd unpack them. We'd think about them together as a company. It's very much a part of kind of the culture, you know, that we have here at CLT. So what you got back to at the very beginning here in terms of thinking about the, the, the telos, the goal, what, what is the purpose? Education is something that collectively in the United States, we spend well over a billion dollars on per year, massive amounts of funding. And when you ask most people, well, what's the purpose of all? I, I would actually kill them as a teacher, not because I, I was testing them. I didn't know I was becoming very disenchanted with the public school project. And mm -hmm. I would ask students my last couple of years in the classroom, like, why are we here? What's the point? I don't think that they knew that I was trying to figure it out myself. And they would, they would just say to get a better job. And they would kind of say it like, we know this already, to get a mm -hmm. better job. That's why we're here. And I, I would then write up on the chalkboard, the object of education is to learn to love what is beautiful, which is t taking the gist of what Plato, I think, his thoughts on education. And they were baffled. They never heard or seen anything like this, this concept of, of shaping the affections, of disciplining the, the, the soul, considering the good life, what we're, what we're here for, where human happiness is to be found. So it was, it was really about the, the goal more than even the source material. 
more than mm-hmm. wanting to champion the Western intellectual tradition or the canon, going back to the purpose being the cultivation of virtue, the formation of the whole human person, rather than this very soulless, like credentialing and, and Right, right. Yeah, I suppose at its at its best, SAT would be purely testing for some cognitive aptitudes, some mathematical abilities, some verbal abilities, or something of this sort. And that very edge of the SAT is interesting. They become somewhat more controversial with people dropping it, thinking that perhaps it doesn't it doesn't do those things, right? It's uh, discriminatory in some way. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of folks don't know is that it's it's a completely different test than the one. You you look pretty young, Caleb. I took the SAT in 1999, 2000. I graduated from high school in 2000. But back then there were analogies. There were logic questions. It's a totally different test now than it was back then. None of that is there. All of that's gone. It's now a common core aligned public school achievement test. And so there's there's definitely, you know, we feel like a need for another option. Well, how do you respond to the typical concern that some people have that classics is elitist. It's exclusionary. It, you know, it's not the sort of thing that's available to all these great works. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, but I think there's still kind of out there, this conception of like classical ed is referring to what they're doing at the boarding schools in New England. And there's this like elitist, snobby, high society aspect to it. It's a weird objection. In fact, it's a weird objection to anything. I think you could object to something like a BMW or a high-level Tesla for the same reason, you know, of, of their elitist, right? Classical education is, is elite. It's not elitist, but it is elite. It is the best kind of education. And it's precisely the kind of education the generation after generation of enslaved Americans were fighting to have access to. That was really all there was, was classical education. And so the way I typically respond is that I think if you put any parent in front of both, in front of a, a fair picture for what is classical education and what is kind of mainstream modern progressive education, I think every parent is going to want their kid to receive a classical education. Every parent wants their kid to go to school and come back more honest. They want them to come back with a deeper sense of curiosity and wonder about the world. I think they want their moral imagination to be stirred and formed, right? These are universal human um longings. I think that classical education can reintroduce people to, but I, I do see it as a, as a concern, but not one that's insurmountable. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It seems it's always, a, I think, an odd objection to put forward if like the thought is it's so elite, it can't be attained by the typical person. But of course, yeah. that's not a, that's not true by any means. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Well, turning to some of these ancient works then, what have you learned with from the Stoics? How has that approached you know, or influenced your approach either to life or this project of yours? Yeah, you know, again, Marcus Aurelius reading uh, meditations, you know, as a company out loud together, you know, thinking through it. They're thinking through the role that that philosophy had in some of the great leaders of the past. I think it's been, been very influential on CLT. And I, I think what we're seeing, and you see this, I believe, by the broad appeal of someone like Jordan Peterson, even the appeal of someone like Spencer Clavin, is young people right now, especially coming out of the public school system, um, they're bored out of their minds. That's actually the number one problem that gets ignored, right? They are so bored. If you take all the transcendental ideas out of education, if you take out everything that's just so controversial that we need to avoid it, 
you end up with a very boring curriculum and a very boring school day, and you end up with students that just look lifeless. And and so I think we want to be re-enchanting by introducing them to the, these kinds of conversations that have been happening for, for countless generations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw a question for one of your optional unscored essay sections was, the Stoic philosophers were deeply concerned by emotion and its tendency to overwhelm. Can emotion be a good thing? I mean, that's just a question that's going to kick off great discussion, great reflections. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, going back to some of the talks earlier, it's a high stakes question, this issue of emotions, how you use emotions. And thinking about that with people like the Stoics, people from other traditions who have wrestled with these sort of questions uh, can only be a good thing. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. And, and we're at a, a a moment right now with really tense, you know, partisan divisions in the country right now. Where with a lot of ideologies that have had a big impact on thinking in in a lot of our schools, and for students to be able to step back and to have any kind of perspective on their own moment requires that kind of level of detachment from what they're they're feeling. And that in some ways that is the first step to being a seriously educated person. One of the things that we're trying to do at CLT, and this is very different than the SAT and ACT, they have what, what are called sensitivity committees for both the SAT and the ACT. And the idea of a sensitivity committee is that uh, a text could be triggering for a student or it could be rattling. Now, I don't think all of this is so silly, actually, Caleb. I think some of the mm -hmm. origins of this idea are pretty good, right? So when the sensitivities kicked off 25 years ago, part of the idea was, well, if a student had an uncle commit suicide or something, we wouldn't want to put them in front of a passage that references suicide during the test because then they're not even going to be able to get an accurate score and they're going to be rattled. I, I totally get that. But they've gone full fanatical with the sensitivity committees. Now, I've met with people from the College Board Sensitivity Committee. And anything, anything now is deemed to be triggering or offensive or upsetting. At CLT, we're trying to use prudence, but to really take almost the exact opposite of and say, you know what? If a text is not offensive to anyone, it probably isn't very important either. Yeah, and so we we intentionally look at passages that were deeply troubling, divisive in their own time period, and putting mm -hmm. students in front of those. And I I believe it is the a mark at least it's it's one mark of a truly educated person that they can read something that's offensive that they don't agree with, and can still understand what the author is saying. They can still understand it. And I think that is that's what is so missing. Of right now, we've got a whole generation of even college students that don't want to be exposed to certain ideas because they're so upsetting to them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, how do you think about that question when it comes to selecting works from your own reading list? Like, are there particular works that you wouldn't choose for that very reason, or my own reading list in terms of? Uh, like Jeremy Tate like, personal reading, or are you talking? Let's do personal. Personal seems interesting. You know, is there something that you wouldn't maybe touch, or at least you know, there's so many things to read. Maybe it's not a factor that you wouldn't touch it. You just wouldn't prioritize reading it. I, I try to be really disciplined with with being willing to read anything anybody sends me, <laughs> especially if it's something I don't you know already agree with. I want to be extra intentional there to read it. But I, I kind of organize my own reading around kind of modern. Uh, kind of business books. I mean, CLT is is uh, is an entity, and so I want to make sure right. that we are operating well as kind of a well. So I've been very immersed in a book called Track, Traction right now, Gino Wickman uh, book, uh, toggling those with uh, a classic, you know, or uh, some kind of an ancient text as well. I've been very into recently, actually, kind of the dystopian novels. I haven't read many of them, 
I read the Hunger Games years ago. If you can now include that, maybe we could debate that in, in the mix. But uh, just Fred Fahrenheit, and then I'm doing 1984 right now. So yeah, trying to. I didn't. I didn't receive a classical education growing up. I, I was really mm -hmm. exposed in seminary, and it wasn't even the point of seminary. It was just kind of as I was in seminary and thinking back about my time in the classroom. I kind of. I remember thinking this. Wow. Like wow. Almost every generation. They were trying to do something entirely different in the goal of education than what we're trying to do now. You know, th this mm -hmm. is a complete 180 that we've done in terms of the basic goal of education. So yeah, I'm still kind of new. I've only been really immersed in discovering this tradition for about 10 years. Yeah. So I suppose you have a message for people who think, you know, classical education is great, but myself, I'm not that deeply steeped in the classics. Or if I look at, you know, the CLT author bank there. So many names I haven't poked into yet, even though I feel I should. And what's what's your thoughts yeah, there? Yeah, in my experience, and Kayla, maybe you've seen this as well, but it seems like most people are very new. The majority of people have kind of recently discovered this. You mm -hmm. know, when I was going into my junior year in college, um, my my wife now girlfriend at the time broke up with me. I uh, I ended up spending the summer in Alaska, totally removed from technology. And I think out of a move to try to impress her because she she became very into Russian literature, uh, I got a copy of, of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I just heard about it, but I had zero distraction that actually in Alaska where it never gets dark, I could read by sunlight until past midnight. And I've never been so immersed in reading before, partly because there was nothing else to do. You know, there was no notifications on a smartphone or anything like that. But what it did is it, is it changed my views of it changed my views on, on profound things through literature. My, my views on, on what sin is, on what grace is, on what real forgiveness looks like, on what real salvation looks like. And so, I I hope that that more and I think it's harder now than ever to have those kind of experiences where you are changed by a deep immersive experience with a timeless work that has impacted so many people in so many different places for many, many generations. Yeah, I think so with all these all these distractions, of course. I think I think also a lot a lot of people might feel some amount of hesitation jumping into some of these great works or feeling like you need to commit to a single one. But there are so many, so many popularizers as well. You mentioned Spencer Clavin, who does, I think, great work promoting some of these or explaining, say say some of Plato's dialogues or more recent works in the canon that if people, you know, pick up a handful, uh, see what they're able to, uh, they're motivated to finish, and I think have the confidence to do it. That's I'd recommend as the best practice, you know, I, I started doing this and it really allowed me to get immersed is take something like Plato's Apology, right? This mm -hmm. is like an hour long read. It's very quick. We're talking about the trial of Socrates essentially. But if you combine actually reading the book with Audible at the same time, uh, it can actually, in my experience, give you a, mer a more immersive uh, experience uh, of the text, know where the inflections are and that sort of thing, and, and give you a little bit of a, of a head start in, uh, in getting a sense of the tradition. But I, I find that the more you read also, the easier it becomes. You know, you know once you read a little bit of, let's say, da Dante and, and Shakespeare, it becomes a bit more natural to pick up Boethius or something like that than it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, the point about listening is great as well. I think especially with people like Shakespeare, for whatever reason, I think he's a lot more easy to listen to, right, than for many to, to read, given that you have the cadence 
at least if, if the performance is any good, you have a useful cadence, inflection of the voice. And that's very helpful, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Well, one thinker you've mentioned quite a lot who's been very influential is C.S. Lewis. So I'm curious, you know, how has the abolition of man specifically influenced your work? Yeah, you know, I love, love, love to talk about the abolition of man. And I, I heard it referenced for a long time before I actually read it. And the first thing I did when I finished reading the abolition of man for the first time is I started over and I read the whole thing. If I've ever, typically I'll revisit a book a few years apart. The abolition of man, I just read it and I read it again. And one of the things that really sticks out to me about the abolition of man is Lewis's foresight in not grounding his argument in the language of the West. But even in a more universal language, he uses the language of the doubt. Essentially, he means natural, we call natural law. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he really puts his finger on the departure that we've made in mainstream education. And he does this in a very universal way, you know. And I, so one of the criticisms I hear a lot about classical education is that, you know, Eurocentric and it's pushing dead white men from Europe and all of this. Well, I think Lewis anticipates that argument in some ways. And he makes the case that the teacher, the good teacher for all of human history, East, West, wherever it may be, their, their goal was to help the student to understand reality, the Tao, natural law, right? Reality itself and to conform around it and to learn to be happy in doing so, right? I think of the Tao or natural law or reality is somewhat like the grain of the universe, you know? And if you've cut wood much, anybody knows that when you cut with the grain, it's a lot easier than cutting against the grain, right? This is why you can split a big fat piece of wood right down the middle if it's standing up, you know, you can you can cut with, with the grain, where you're gonna chop for a long time going against the grain. And and Lewis makes the argument that we went outside the Tao. Uh, he says that it that he questions if anything has been has has been good, uh, departing from traditional uh, morality, right? Uh, much of what he writes in The Abolition of Man, I actually saw reflected in the first chapter or two in Mere Christianity. So the first chapter of Mere Christianity, he's not even getting into Christianity or any claims that Jesus makes or anything like that. What he's doing is he's taking this very common, universal, everyday experience of just arguing and that what's happening when people are arguing is they're appealing to an unseen metaphysical reality that everybody has a general sense that they they ought to be kind instead of cruel they ought to be giving they ought not to steal they ought to be honest and that we all know that this law exists right and that essentially is what is at the heart and the soul of lewis's abolition man yeah absolutely i think you have a he foresaw this kind of relativism in education this idea that we don't promote ideas of what it is to live the good life anymore in education and some of the, the impacts of that. You have the loss of these ideas of initiation. I think it's also something that really stuck out to me the first time I, I read that I read that work. So I highly recommend it. I think it's, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's work, and it's also another one that I think is relatively, relatively short, right? It's not a, not a huge tone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Abolition of Man is probably, it's very short, it's maybe 90 pages or so. I'm actually reading a book. I'm curious, Caleb, if you've heard of this right now, Peter Kreeft. It's I Surf, Therefore I Am. Oh, that's really interesting. I haven't, I've heard of Kreeft, but I have not 
gotten through iSurf, therefore I am. Okay, yeah. So when I was in Reformed Theological Seminary, I took just an elective on C.S. Lewis. And the, the professor, Knox Chamberlain, the first class, because this is a very, very Reformed seminary, he, he gives a 20-minute defense of his reliance on Peter Kreef, uh, who's a Roman Catholic, as kind of the top, top Lewis you know, scholar to kind of unpack Lewis. But you know, it, in that class, we, we really immersed ourselves in the world that Lewis was experiencing. And I, I think because he was in the context that he was in, when you know, the atheist mindset was very much dominant in, you know, the early 20th century that he really thought through first principles in, in such a profound way that I think that still speaks to people today. And look, I don't want to mince words. I mean, I think there's a, an absolute tragedy that's going on in mainstream education right now. And, you know, the, the, and the reason I bring up Peter Kreeft and, and I serve therefore I am is he goes back to this basic philosophical idea that that happiness is the one thing that everybody all over the globe is, is is wanting to go for, right? Everything that we do in some ways ties back to this, this goal of happiness. And Lewis makes the case in Abolition of Man that in virtue is, is happiness, right? That in doing the right thing is the way our, our souls are designed to live. There's this famous quote from the Abolition of Man, you know, we make men without chest and expect from them enterprise and, and all of this, right? Uh, and are surprised to find traitors in our midst, that we have abandoned this traditional aim of education, of cultivating virtue. Uh, and then we wonder why we are in, we're living through an absolute moral crisis. It all comes back to education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been excellent. Do you have anything else you want to add? Okay, I'm grateful for the work you're doing. Always, always happy to chat. So thanks for having me on uh, as a guest. All right, perfect. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search STOA in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.